Rise and shine history buffs, it's time for another episode of Monday Morning General. Here we give you the play-by-play analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, hanging out with Bjarn, and over there we have a new face. What's up, Sam? Hey, everyone. How are you doing? I'm Sam. Super happy to be here and uh, excited to talk about Passchendaele today. Glad to have you here. So yeah, giving away the lead, we are talking about the Battle of Passchendaele or the Third Battle of Ypres, fought between the Allies, mostly the British, with a few French divisions against the German Empire on the Western Front of World War One. The battle took place from July to November of 1917 and was fought for control of the ridges south and east of the Belgian city of Ypres and West Flanders. Yeah, so this is actually really important to understand here, Brendan, that all the battles we previously talked about, they've been a day. Uh, This one is three months. So this battle is going to take place over three months. It's really difficult when you're talking about World War I battles to break it down. They've got, they're more like campaigns because there's going to be days where a lot happens and then there's going to be days where not so much happens. But the generally agreed upon idea is that this battle took place over a period of about three months over there in uh, in Belgium, the far western portion of Belgium. You say it's like a campaign. It's a campaign in time only, but it is a battle in geographic circumstance. Like this yeah. battle is not on a large piece of, of terrain, right? So it is it is a battle in terms of geography, but yeah, yeah but it's a battle think, fought over a long period. I think the, to, to your point, I think the terrain itself is only like 12 miles north and south and about five yeah. miles east and west. And when we're, we're going to talk about the casualties involved here, the sheer number of people here is astounding. It is the biggest battle in terms of people that we've talked about so far on this. By um, far. So, Bjorn, By before far. we jump into, you know, getting into the historical context and providing some analysis here, uh, before we get into the battle next episode, can you just give us a quick uh, understanding of why this battle is interesting and something for us that we want to talk about? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's always times uh, that, that people... They remember particular campaigns, particular battles during an entirety of a war. The Battle of Passchendaele, uh, or the Third Battle of Ypres, is one of those that sits sits in the minds of a lot of individuals. Uh, We're going to see some really impressive occurrences, but more than anything, just the controversy that surrounds this battle is one of those that leave a lot of historians sitting there wondering why in the world did this battle happen. Now, Mm. World War I... On the Western Front, we're going to see massive casualties on a grand scale. But generally speaking, you could look at that and you could say there was a reason why this battle was fought. Someone was attempting to gain something for a purpose more than just, you know, killing off some of your enemy or maybe grabbing a foot or two of, of ground, which is really kind of the sad state of affairs yeah. here. Uh, what we're going to see here is a controversy surrounding two different things. When the Battle of Passchendaele kicks off, it's right on the heels of the Nivelle Offensive, which was organized by a uh, French general, Robert Nivelle, and it was a it was a complete and utter shambles. It was a tragedy. It was about a month long, and there were massive casualties on the French side. The British were involved. It was a disaster. It was so bad that the French armies decided to mutiny. They stopped Mm. fighting. They decided, they said, we will sit here in our trenches. We will not go over the top again. We will defend ourselves. We will defend France, but we will not move forward. That's a real problem to be in when you're trying to win a war or when you're just trying to advance into your enemy's trenches and take some some more territory. So that's one of the major questions is why on the heels of something so devastating are the British so eager to continue the chaos? Well, secondly, this battle, the Battle of Passchendaele, is going to take place in the summer of 1917. This four months after the United States got involved in this war. We are not yet ready to go. 
the the American army is not yet over there, but they're on their way. So why are the British uh, so excited to throw more of their men away when they know that the Americans are on the way? So those and, two controversies really beg the question of why in the world did the British think that this was a good idea? And think about the mental toll that would take on the soldiers too. Like, you know that you're getting massive reinforcements from the United States. They just need a little bit of time to mobilize. And all of a sudden your command is telling you, hey, we need you to go and fight a quarter million Germans uh, before, without these reinforcements. Like, especially coming off, uh, like, like Bjorn had said, the Neville offensive. That just would be so disheartening. Like, I can't imagine putting myself in those shoes. And and what we're going to see when the battle actually kicks off is that the environment that they find themselves in, the terrain, and also the weather plays terribly into this. And it's it was, almost as if God was against them. Oh, like, yeah. When you look at the weather, it was <laughs> it's incredibly, it's incredible how awful it was. Yeah. And, and so just the, the thought behind what these soldiers are going through, what they're going to be doing. Well, at the back of their mind, they're saying, why are we doing this? America is on the way over here. And like you said, all for paltry gains, all for very paltry gains. I won't give away the lead, but it is it is sad. Let's jump into historical context here. So like Bjorn said, this is the third Battle of Ypres. So there's been two other battles that have been fought in the vicinity of this little Belgium town. So the first Battle of Ypres uh, fought in October to November of 1914. Uh, was fought in order to gain a local advantage after the race the sea had formed, right? So, like, this is, like, the last edge, the northern edge of the western, you know, the other the southern edge goes down to the Swiss Alps, and this is the last chance for the Germans or the British to, you know, get around the edge of the line and make a breakthrough. Uh, but a stalemate happened here back in 14. Uh, staggering numbers of soldiers and 4.4 million Allied troops, 5.4 million German, over 130,000 German casualties, French casualties uh, between 50 and 85,000, the British having 58,000 casualties, and the Belgian army having 21. So huge numbers already back in 1940. Gets us yeah, in, in, anything on that one? Yeah. So for those listeners that don't understand the importance of gaining a flank, um, it's so the, the way the war was developing, Brendan had kind of mentioned the race to the sea. You know, when you have a, a immovable object meeting an, a, an unstoppable force, like it just. You, you, you need to get to the side so that you can, uh, you know, uh, attack a, an area that's softer. But so we, we, you, we saw the Allies and the Germans kind of racing to the sea. The sea wasn't necessarily the goal, but that flank was the goal so that they right. could uh, penetrate and, and, uh, and, and soften up their, their opponent. And Ypres was the was kind of the the tipping point where where those two ends. The edge was never achieved by either army. It was never. That brings us to the second battle of Ypres back in April to May of 1915, which was fought for the tactically important high ground to the in south of the Flemish Ypres. And the second battle of Ypres was the first mass use by German poison gas. Bjorn. So this point, like you, you hear like the horror stories of the, the gas just pouring in to the trenches. What what happened in the second battle of Ypres? Yeah, we need to take a, a tactical pause here. We need to delve a little bit deeper into this whole poison gas scenario. So uh, remember, I mean, the, the battle, the area of Ypres in Belgium is a very influential position throughout the First World War because the first time these kind of things happen are going to be, uh, it's going to be monumental. So like the first battle of Ypres, that's where the war stagnates, the race to the sea ends. Now we're entrenched. We're going to spend the rest of the war or almost the rest of the war in trenches. Uh, the second battle of Ypres, we're going to see the Germans use poison gas for the first time on the Western Front. So on the 22nd of April, 1915, it's about a five o'clock in the evening. 
the fourth army, the fourth German army is going to release 171 tons of chlorine gas on a four mile front. All right. That so so much gas. So yeah, much like gas. If you've never like the French have no idea what this is. This scary green smoke coming out over the tra- over the no man's land. That's right. Horrifying. And. And here's how it's going to be. It's going to be delivered. Uh, the early forms of gas delivery systems were where the Germans would go to their front trench- trenches. They would wait for the wind to blow in the right direction. They would open the canisters and the smoke mm. would have to billow across no man's land. So it's not very, uh, it's not technical. It is not accurate. If the wind shifts, you're in real trouble. If you're, you know, you're yeah, getting, a blast, east. <laughs> getting a back <laughs> blast of that, of that chlorine. Um, but the Germans are going to release this gas on a four-mile front between the hamlets of Langemark and Gravenstelf. Uh, that's on the Allied line. It's held by French territorial uh, and troop colonials. So they're Moroccan and Algerian troops of the French 45th and 87th Divisions. So the French are holding the line here when all of a sudden this cloud billows over them. Now, for the listeners, chlorine gas smells like a swimming pool. So that's, I mean, that's essentially what it is. A very, very strong swimming pool smell because it's chlorine, right? So instead of chlorine in a liquid or a solid form, you know, they use the chlorine pellets when they put it in the swimming pool, it turns into, you know, mixes with the water. It's in a liquid form. Instead, it's in a gas form. Now the French troops, mass chaos. Like imagine, you have no idea what the heck this is. The Germans had used poison gas on the Eastern Front before, but it wasn't poison gas. It was tear gas that they had mm-hmm. that they had mobilized in, against the Russians. The French troops are not ready for this. The path of cloud, uh, it's going to cause about two to 3,000 casualties. About 800 to 1,400 of those individuals are going to die. Just straight up, they're going to drown in their own mucus. All right? This is, this is nasty stuff. I got a quote here from a Colonel uh, Henri Mordac. Yeah, he's going to say, Haggard... Their overcoats thrown off or wide open, their scarves pulled up, running like madmen, directionless, shouting for water, spitting blood, some even rolling on the ground, making desperate efforts to breathe. Imagine, I mean, you could you could send soldiers in to a hail of gunfire. You could tell soldiers that they're going to have to run up against a tank, but to tell them that the air that they're breathing is poisonous to them, that's going to be a problem. I cannot imagine a situation yeah, like that. So- completely uh, chaotic. The French are going to just, they're going to, they're going to break and run. There's a four mile gap in the, in the lines, completely undefended. That breakthrough that Germany had been looking for has been achieved. The German infantry is going to be following behind this cloud of gas. They're going to be using cotton pads. uh, Basically think of like a big old bandage tied to their face. That's been soaked with sodium uh, sulfate solution. Uh, It's, they're going to occupy the villages of Langemark and Pilkman, um, but then they're going to dig in. So they are not going to take advantage of this gap in the line. And that right there could be, you could argue that that's one of the big mistakes of this. The Germans and the English and the French during World War I, they're going to use something for the first time, and they're going to use it as like an experiment. And generally speak, speaking, the first time they use it, it's massive, uh, massive results could have been obtained had mm-hmm. they backed it up. But the Germans had very limited uh, goals. Their goal was to utilize this poison gas and then advance a little bit. And that's what they did. Had their idea been, if we have the opportunity, we will push through as fast and as far as we can, they could have seen some major, major advance. Um, But they're going to decide to dig in. Uh, They might have been able to occupy the city of Ypres almost unopposed. 
They took 2,000 prisoners. They captured 51 artillery pieces. Uh, the Canadian troops that were defending the southern flank of that break-in, they were able to identify that it was chlorine. Uh, they said it smelled like their drinking water because they were using chlorine in mm-hmm. order to purify their drinking water. Um, but the Germans are going to release more chlorine the next day, uh, especially heavy casualties on that Canadian uh, div- battalion that was involved. But it's going to be a massive opportunity that is going to be wasted. Now, Bjorn, you you can answer this question, hopefully. Uh, was the use of chemical weapons technically banned at this time by the universal uh, uh, law of war? I think Geneva came after that. I know Geneva yeah. came after that, but there, there wasn't there. There was some sort of uh, precursor to Geneva. I believe it was in Russia. It was, the, it was the Hague. The Hague. The Hague. Thank you very much. It was the. It was the Hague. No, it was the Hague Convention. It was in the early 1900s, late 1800s. It had been signed banning poison gas. It was, in fact, illegal. But when you are at a war for the very existence of your empire, as you see, the the losers saw their empires destroyed. They cast it aside. Poison gas was absolutely illegal according to modern war laws that had been signed only, you know, a decade or two prior. But what are you going to do, Sam? Go to war against me? (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. So I and, and and again, so so something interesting that I I may or may not be true, but I I found to be interesting was during how I understand the Hague Convention and how the contract was written. Again, I haven't read it, uh, but the use of poison gas in an artillery pe- in an artillery shell was what was banned, and it was thought that you needed to launch the artillery so that the gas would be away from you to use it, yeah. and so in order to uh, get, get through the loophole. That is why the Germans just simply released the the lids on the barrels when the wind was just right, so that they could technically be within the law of war. That may or may not be true, but uh, it is interesting to point out that the use of chemical weapons was banned by the Hague Convention. Sam, you're spot on. It says the 1899 Hague Peace Convention. Uh, it basically says that it was an agreement to abstain from the use of projectiles, the sole object of which was the diffusion of asphyxiating or delicia, deleterious gases. So there you go. So there you go. The Germans are innocent. Anything wrong? We just left these barrels out overnight. Exactly. <laughs> We forgot to turn our tanks off, you know, we were grilling and we forgot to turn off the game. The other thing that is interesting to me here, like, so Sam, you have a maneuver background and can you imagine like achieving a beautiful breakthrough? You have a four mile open stretch and then you just stop right inside of that breakthrough. It, it, it boggles the mind. It really does. You, you have to wonder though, like with this first use of chemical weapons, there's probably a lot of confusion. There's probably a lot of, yeah. you know, is this area safe to enter? I, and I don't know, maybe they weren't thinking about that. Maybe they were, but I don't know. I mean, considering how important Ypres uh, was to both sides, it's, it's hard to um, comprehend the fact that they didn't yeah. uh, seize the initiative there. But the crazy part about it is you can look throughout all of history where individuals, instead of taking the initiative, they do the safe thing because they've achieved their objectives. I mean, we you see almost in, every conversation we've had so far, Bjorn, has had some sort of uh, effect like exactly. And when what Sam was talking about, the the most glaringly obvious example in my mind is when the Germans invaded uh, France during World War II, and then they stopped short of Dunkirk, and they could have had an outstanding victory. They could have captured, they could have bagged the whole lot of the British, but instead they let them all go mm-hmm. because someone told them to stop. They had the initiative, they had the opportunity, and they stopped. That's exactly what's going to happen here. But I got one more quote about poison gas just for the listeners to really get excited about how terrible and how how <laughs> scary this is. So, excited, uh, huh? Lan- 
Lance Sergeant Elmer Cotton, he says, it produces a flooding of the lungs. It is an equivalent death to drowning only on dry land. The effects are these, a splitting headache and terrific thirst. To drink water is instant death. A knife edge of pain in the lungs and the coughing up of a greenish froth off the stomach and the lungs, ending finally in insensibility and death. The color of the skin from white turns a greenish black and yellow. The tongue protrudes and the eyes assume a glassy stare. It is a fiendish death to die. Oh, you know, and that coming from a guy named Elmer Cotton, man, what a World <laughs> War One name that was. So that's the that's the second battle of Eep. That took Sounds place. Terrible. In, remember that took place in 1915. That was only six We're, months after the first battle. Yeah, and then everything kind of dies down the next year. In 1916, oh, oh, oh. specifically in Ypres, I like it. Oh, yeah. right. get very exciting. Absolutely it, nothing uh... died down in the Western Front. <laughs> okay, all right. Actually, minor note here, uh, a regular day on the Western Front where no major battles were taking place, they still had casualties, obviously, and they would call those casualties wastage. And it oh. was a good day if on the Western Front you suffered only 5,000 casualties due to wastage every day. 5,000 every day. That was a good day. So in 1916, in the Ypres salient, uh, there's going to be very limited operations. You're going to see some German initiatives to distract the Allies from the preparations for their offensive at Verdun. Because remember, the Germans are going to be throwing everything that they have in 1916 at Verdun in France. It's that pocket of fortresses in uh, in Eastern France. We'll definitely talk you guys about will Verdun have to do an episode on Verdun at yeah. some point. That is just... We will get Verdun and the well, and, and so Verdun is an 11-month-long battle. It took place, started in February of 1916, goes till December. So obviously, if the Germans have all of their attention in Verdun, there's going to be very limited things that they're going to have the strength yeah. to do in Ypres. At the same time, the French are going to be in similar a similar situation. But if you recall, the French ran into such a, a terrible scenario in Verdun that they were crying to the British to relieve some of the pressure on them. They said, Brits, we need you to, to do an offensive, start bogging down the Germans somewhere else. The Germans are going to choose the Somme. So that's why during 1916, we're going to see major German and British and French uh, conflicts in Verdun and in the, and at the Somme and not in Passchendaele, not in uh, Ypres, Ypres. So other operations are going to be begun to try and regain territory or to grab some uh, specific ground that was like very advantageous. We can talk about ridge lines and hills later on as to why those would be necessary. Really nothing major happens in 19. So then we get to 1917 where things finally start to move in the northern portion front. Let's talk real quick about why Ypres. Why did the British focus in on the northern portion of the western front? Why did they focus on Belgium? Uh, and it's really important for a couple different reasons. First, on the 1st of February, 1917, the Germans are going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare. And so the impetus on the British to clear out those Belgian coastlines for the use of the of the German submarines, they had to get them out of there. If the French and the British can recapture Belgium, that deprives them of the coastline that they were previously using to house their submarines, their U-boats. All right. So number one idea deprive the Germans of the ability to utilize their U-boats in a close area to the British shipping lanes, right? Because otherwise they have to go from Williamshaven and Kiel, which is over there in Germany, and those boats would have to sail a longer distance. All right, so now we we're talking about Ypres. It, it, it basically derives from two different things. First of all, 
we got to keep the Germans occupied. Now, they had had an original agreement here with the Russians in the Kerensky offensive that the Russians were going to initiate an offensive in uh, in November of 1916. They make this agreement and the, the Russians are going to do everything that they can to distract the Germans. As the Germans are being distracted, that means that now the British and the French have to take the initiative. They have to use that advantage that the Russians are so... Uh, expensively paying for. Because if you remember, the Russians are not very good at conducting offensive operations. There's only going to be one really uh, impressive offensive operation during the entirety of the war that the Russians are going to conduct. And by the end, when that one offensive takes place, they are not going to be able to roll that up and and sustain that. That's uh, the Brusilov offensive is going to take place. That's the one good battle that takes place that the Russians lead on the Eastern Front. So the Russians here, they're distracting the Germans. So now the French and the British have to take the initiative. They have to go. Uh, There's a dude, his name is General Robert Nivelle. We've talked about him before, but he's the dude who's now got this idea. And the idea is we're going to overwhelm the German lines with artillery. We're going to pound the snot out of them. We're going to give them everything that we have. And at that point in time, we're going to give them everything that we have. We're going to send everyone. And it is going to be massively devastating. Now, Navell thought this was a great idea, but the British general, Sir Douglas Haig, thinks it's not going to work because why would it? It's not worked before. So he's going to have reservations. His reservations are, uh, if this does not work, we are going to put a, we're going to do a timeout real quick and we are going to change our focus to the north because remember, we need to capture the Belgian coast. So the British had made that agreement with the French. We'll fight you the way you want to fight. We'll do your Nivelle offensive if it doesn't work, then we're out. And what do you know? The offensive goes from the 9th of April to the 9th of May, and it doesn't work. Catastrophic casualties. Uh, or There are a couple initial gains. I mean, you pound the snot out of the right. German front lines. They're not going to be able to hold. That's just not the way it's going to work. But it doesn't have the results they expected. And so Douglas Haig changes direction. He says, we're going north. We're going to Belgium, and we're going to fight in Ypres. All right, let's talk about Field Marshal Douglas Haig. He's the first Earl of Haig. He commanded the British Expeditionary Force in the Western Front from late 1915 until the end of the war. He was commander during the Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Arras, the Third Battle of Ypres, the German Spring Offensive, and the Hundred Days Offensive. Haig is widely criticized for his leadership during the first. He was nicknamed Butcher Haig. The two million British casualties endured under his. The Canadian War Museum comments his epic but costly offensives at the Somme and Passchendaele have become nearly synonymous with the carnage and futility of the First World War battle. Since the 1980s, many historians have argued that the public hatred with which Haig's name had come to be associated failed to recognize the adoption of new tactics and technologies by forces under his command, the important role played by British forces in the Allied victory of 1918, and that high casualties were a consequence of the tactical butcher Haig. Not yeah. a great name to have as a general. Definitely not. But you, when you're looking at it, you have to understand that he was in charge for a really long time. 1915 until the end of the war. So obviously he's going to have a lot of casualties that are going to be sustained. He was originally thought to be a pretty unimaginative leader, unimaginative commander. But then you have to think about it. During Between 1915 and 1918, the British are going to utilize tanks for the first time uh, to great success. They're going to implement those guys on the battlefield. They're going to implement a lot of new uh, roll, you know, creeping barrages, artillery bombardment mm-hmm. styles. They're going to utilize gas warfare. They're going to adopt 
a lot of new modern war ideas during his tenure in on command. So, uh, and I, th- I think adopt is is probably inaccurate. I think it's more like invent on the fly. Like mm-hmm. how do, how do we solve this problem? And you know, a lot of times, uh, especially for Haig, that answer was let's let's fire artillery at it. You know, like at the Battle of the Somme, they were firing ten thousand shells a day, and that was Haig's baby. And so that was kind of like. Let's 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 do it and let's let's kind of overdo it and, and just see if that solves the problem. Throw it all at the wall and uh, see what sticks. And that was Hag. That was Hag. But also uh, sending his men over at the Somme and having the largest casualties in a single day. Dudes walked across the battlefield with a soccer ball because they thought the amount of artillery that we've expended on the German lines, there can't possibly be anyone left alive. Turns out the Germans were a little bit better at building their trenches. Right. And so continuing to just throw something like artillery at a problem that artillery is not solving you know that's that's how that's how generals get you know bad reputations by just continuing to do something that is isn't working and then dudes are dying um in crazy numbers so that's the allied side let's talk about the german side so on the on the, the leading the german army here is uh eric frederick wilhelm ludendorff following his appointment as first quartermaster general of the Imperial army's great general staff in 19 19- he became the chief policymaker and a de facto military di- dictatorship that dominated for the rest of the and bjorn we'll, we'll get more into this a little bit but so ludendorff kind of comes up with this great defense and depth strategy right to to give the germans some depth depth to their defense so it's not just focusing on you know the one trench line so let's let's talk about that like as we jump into the tactical view here let's talk about the germans defense and depth strategy that loops together here sure so a uh, quick run through the tactics everyone's got this idea in their mind it's a modern war right so for the first time we're seeing machine guns we're seeing chemical warfare we're seeing airplanes utilized for the first time in combat you've large got amounts massive, of artillery concentrated wire artillery. gas yeah it's all there uh when you're going to attack you're in your trenches your trench could be anywhere between 50 and uh 500 meters away from your opponent's line you've got uh listening posts lpops you've got observation posts in the center well, nice digging, acronym. thanks man you're you're digging <laughs> You're digging uh, mines underneath your opponent's trenches. You're putting dynamite in there. You're utilizing every idea that has been and every idea that you think will be in order to destroy your enemy's trenches. Now, if there was only one single line of trenches and you bust through that line, well, then you're golden. And there were a couple opportunities like we saw with the utilization of poison gas where there was a massive hole that was busted through the lines. But Eric Ludendorff, now... He is going to start the war. Uh, He's going to do a really great job of capturing the fortress at Liege. He's going to then get taken uh, over to the Eastern Front with a guy named Hindenburg. And they're going to have a massive victory uh, at the Battle of Teutonburg Forest. They're going to do great things in the East. And they're going to do so well that they're going to be placed in overall command of the German military forces. Well, Hindenburg was kind of the figurehead. Ludendorff was the one who was working nonstop. And he creates this idea of a defense in depth. So essentially, the idea behind it is that you're going to... Hindenburg got the the namesake for the Hindenburg line, but it was Ludendorff's idea. Oh, yeah. Hindenburg was... Hindenburg was this figurehead. He was this old dude who had been brought out of retirement because he was famous or something. And like he would take naps while Ludendorff literally never slept. The guy was nuts. And he comes up with this idea 
that you, instead of just having one stiff, solid line, you need to delay your enemy mm-hmm. and prevent the, uh, their advance by mm-hmm. buying time and causing additional casualties in order by yielding space. So you've got your front line, you have your secondary line, you have your tertiary lines, you've got machine gun positions uh, strategically placed throughout the entirety of that. Instead of defending one single line with a very strong defense, you are going to allow them, allow your enemy to penetrate well falling back as they're wasting their lives, as they're wasting their energies and their ammunition. You are buying yourself time. You're creating space for a and counter. And you're, you're, that space you're creating, you're, like the Germans are falling back to advantageous positions that they have set up for themselves specifically. Lure, they're luring the British and the French into the really nice little salience for them to be surrounded by Germans. Right? Absolutely. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the entire war, the Germans are going to have very good uh, defensive capabilities, defensive tactics. That defense in depth is going to be their idea. But then at the same time, they're going to have spectacular offensive capabilities with their creation of uh, the stormtrooper. And that that concept of instead of trying to capture all the territory, your job is to infiltrate. And if there's a pocket of resistance, go around. Just go around, yep. get through the line, punch through the line, create chaos in the rear, and get moving. That's their idea. It's kind of wild. I I know Ludendorff is a German. He's the the baddie, and we're supposed to not lie. I like Ludendorff a lot. He's kind of a guy that made it on his own. This whole defense and depth thing is something that we still use today. Like it yep. is the the way Ludendorff laid it out is how modern defenses are still done today, and it's it's pretty cool. The legacy that he built for himself again uh, wasn't fighting for the Allies, but uh, he was a very smart guy that deserves the credit. Or right, surprisingly, like one of the things that we still retain from one in terms of and like strategies and like how to actually. So that's a that's a defensive side, Bjorn. How are the British going to be attacking into this this line that Luna has set up at you? Right. So this is uh, it's a salient. So for those who don't know what a salient is, it's basically a bulge in the line. So you would like your lines to be as straight as possible because that means you're using the minimum amount of soldiers to defend that line. Are the British in the in the bulge or are the Germans in the bulge? The British are in this bulge. The British are holding the city of Ypres and then around to the north and all the way to the south on a three way kind of a, a semicircle. Uh, you are seeing the Germans on three sides. Now, the British are the ones who are holding these amazing hills, and so they're going to want to hang on to them, and the Germans are going to want to take these hills away. Uh, But here's the thing. The British have prepared very well for an operation in Belgium. Now, they've built railroads. Now, you guys know me. I'm a logistics guy. I like the rails. I like the roads. I want to make sure that you've got as much ammunition and fuel and food as you possibly need. The British, in, beginning in 1915, started doubling their rail lines into that portion of Belgium. So they've got double rails. They're capable of pushing massive amounts of resources into this area to sustain an operation. All right. Uh, not only that, but they begin to utilize actual planning uh, to the idea of uh, how can we utilize our offensive resources that are available to us uh, using the terrain that we have along with a likely German defense. So, Brendan, uh, with the MI stuff, what do we call that today? Is that MDMP? Uh, so that, yeah, that's the military decision-making process, how we, we go through creating plans. So not really an MI yeah. thing. It's like a whole army thing. Yeah. That's a whole army thing, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just did MDMP the other the other month. But 
so we're using the the British are using this military decision making process. They're evaluating the terrain. They're evaluating the resources that they have. The what they think the most likely course of action that the Germans are going to utilize uh, in order to defend that area. In early 1916, uh, they decide that there's this importance on capturing this plateau that the Germans are holding on to. They need to advance further north. Uh, it's emphasized by Haig and all the army of commanders that this is what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to decide. Uh, first, there's this guy, he's Colonel Norman uh, McMullen of the, the general headquarters. He's going to have this great idea. He's like, hey, we should use this mass tank attack in order to capture this, which would re- you know reduce our need for artillery. Well, great idea, Norman, except for the fact that this area, completely unsuitable for tanks. And what we're going to see with regard to the weather, as Sam has alluded, uh, a tank would have absolutely no chance here. So it's a good thing that the British didn't attempt to utilize tanks and that they had done their reconnaissance prior to. Now, Brendan, that's something that we've seen uh, a failure to do yeah. many times in the past. But the British are going to successfully recon the area and make a good decision. Uh, now, there's this battle that takes place prior to the initiation of the battle, this, the third battle of Ypres. It's called the Battle of of Messines Ridge. And this was a monster uh, mine-laying, mine-digging operation. They are going to dig underneath the German trenches, and they're going to pack them full of explosives, and they're going to blow them to smithereens. But as soon as that kind of, that ignition happens, and it's just south of Passchendaele, it's just south of the the ridgeline there, um, as soon as that kind of kicks off, the third battle of Ypres is on the way. All right, so... The Germans, they're going to be anxious that the British are trying to exploit the victory of the Battle of Messines. So remember those explosive mines? Um, The Germans, remember, they've got this defense in depth. And they're going to have this argument between uh, Ludendorff, the Crown Prince Ruprecht, and this dude named General Fitz von Lossberg, who's the chief of staff of the Fourth Army. These guys are going to be discussing which lines do we abandon, what ground do we withdraw from, and which do we hold. And uh, there were some, you know, you've got the Crown Prince Ripricht who's proposing a withdrawal to the Flandern line, which is actually their third line of defense. Um, but Lossberg is going to say, no, we're holding. We're going to hold where we are. And uh, so they've got all sorts of lines. Remember, we said this defense in depth. They've got their front position. They've got their Albrechtstlung, which is their second position, their Williamsstellung, uh, which is the third position, Fandern Einstellung, Fandern Zweistellung, Fanders Dreistellung. They've got all these positions, and they refuse to to withdraw from them. So, so that's just like showing you how deep this thing is, right? I think, what, what was that, yeah. like six different defensive positions, uh, defensive lines here? That is... Like that is an insane thing for the British to try to figure out a way to break through seven different defensive lines. Absolutely. Now we talked about this, uh, the Battle of Messines Ridge. The Germans on the ridge had observation over Ypres and unless it was captured, they would have enfilading artillery fire could be fired from uh, against any British attack that's coming from the salient further north. So uh, the British had been mining since mid-1915. They've been digging under the German positions on the ridge. By June 1917, there were 21 mines that had been filled with nearly a million pounds of explosives. The Germans, they knew the British were mining. They had been using countermeasures to try and uh, def- to defeat these mines, but to no avail. All but, tw- all but two of the mines are going to detonate on the 7th of June at 3.10 a.m. Monstrous, monstrous explosions. If you go there today, if you go to Ypres today, 
you can go just south of the town and you can see these amazing, they're, they're, they're huge, mm. massive craters that were left from these. I've actually looked into one and I thought, man, if I fell into this thing, I'd never get out. And uh, it's it's like a canyon. It is insane. Wow. Uh, and so basically, yeah, that would... imagine again being a, being a soldier there when that thing detonates. Like, what do you what are you gonna do when a million pounds of explosives detonate underneath the ground? Like, man, you know, die. You know what you're gonna do? Yes, you die. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna die, and you're gonna yeah. lose your dominating position on that ridge, which is what the Germans are gonna do. And the first battle of Ypres kicks off with the massive explosions of the, the third battle. So, the, so again, the timeline I, I think here is important because it was June seventh that these detonated, but they didn't get approval for the battle until the twenty fifth of June. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the battle of the Messine Ridge that was that was a conversation that happened uh, prior to. So, the battle of Ypres, the third battle of Ypres, is not supposed to kick off until after these mines had been destroyed. Okay, but so this like was the said, end of the last battle. That's right. So the, the Battle of Messine Ridge kicks off the Third Battle of Ypres. But we'll get into that next. All right, Bjorn, thanks for that that deep dive here leading in. We knew we were going to get ourselves into a little tangle here. Lee's large World War One battle, so I'm glad we're jumping into it here. Sam, uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us, man. It's, that's fun. Uh, so course, hopefully you can yeah, join us again fun. for the next one to actually get into the details of the battle here. Uh, oh, man, that's a lot of explosive, Bjorn. What did you say, a million pounds? A million, pounds. Pounds. God, a million pounds, a million pounds. But then on top, that, it's, on top it's of hard, that, it's hard. It's hard to comprehend. Like the numbers when you talk. Like we just got done. T- Sam talking about uh, Trenton and Princeton from the Revolutionary War last time, and it's like a thousand guys. Yeah, it, this it is like so small. Like George Washington running around the woods with like is, the scale. It's a mass. It's massive. It's hard. It's, it's, it's massive. Like thinking of the universe, right? Like you can't even think about the universe. Yeah. Like, so thinking like, about a million pounds. We're looking at 48 square miles that's going to hold a million people at a time. Oh, it's crazy. All with shells flying and mud. And it's that just goes to show how important Ypres is to, to both sides. Like Bjorn had talked about, um, you know, it's kind of it's it's the Belgian act, the access to the Belgian coast for the Germans. Um, and it is, you know, the salient for the the British and they, they're trying to defend it. Yeah. So it's just. Um, and every, each and each of them are trying to not get outflanked. Mm-hmm. So it's just a very interesting uh, piece of terrain for both sides. All right. So next time we are going to talk about the terrain around Bashendale. We're going to talk about the weather. We talked about how the weather is. So we're going to get some more details on the weather. We're going to talk about who actually fought here. So we're going to get you some numbers. And then we're going to give you an in-depth play-by-play uh, of what actually happened here at the Third Battle of Ypres. Uh, and then we'll do a little little analysis, a uh, conclusion there, and then we'll jump into our next series. So everyone, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you uh, two weeks from now.